Hi, I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Gordon Kennedy. Gordon Kennedy has won multiple Grammys, one for his work as a songwriter on Change the World, mm -hmm. the second as a producer on uh, Peter Frampton's Fingerprints mm -hmm. record. He's had uh, many hits as a songwriter for artists ranging from Faith Hill to Bonnie Raitt and Carrie Underwood and Garth Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's been a, a sideman uh, touring. He's been in bands. Uh, he's been a session player. And most recently, he has been touring with Garth Brooks, doing stadium shows and also dive bar shows. Oh, yeah. He added the dive bar thing because his single, the duet with Blake Shelton. Yeah. It came out maybe a month or so ago, and so he decided we're going to do seven dive bars, and we've done two so far. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were at uh, the Crystal Palace out in Bakersfield. Yeah. So I got to be in that club, Buck Owens Club, which is also a museum. Yes. So I saw the last guitar Leo Fender ever built, and I held and played the last guitar Buck played on the day he passed away. Yeah. So uh, it was a cool place to be. It's a very cool place yeah. to be. So you were born in 1959? November. Yeah. And you were born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And musical parents. Yeah. Your mother had a, a record deal with Ram Records. Yeah. Your father had a record deal also. But then you all moved to, to Nashville when you were one. Right. And Man, then, I should be interviewing you. <laughs> what, when did I? No. Keep, no, you're, you're, you got it. <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to catch up here. So... Uh, really, you know, your your father got into into session playing fairly quickly and played on a lot of a lot of famous records. Why don't you tell us a few of the uh, sessions your dad played on? Well, um, he <clears throat> can I go back and tell about how he got into playing guitar? Yeah, um, he was nine years old, and his dad, who I'm named after, who was a deputy sheriff in Caddo Parish, asked him just out of the blue to nine year old Jerry Kennedy, son, how would you like to go get a guitar lesson? And so I knew that my dad was nine when he got his first lesson. I knew he was also, that was the same age he was when his dad died. And, but I never knew the, the order of events, sequence of events, until I talked to my grandmother on the phone. I'm grown, married, got my own kids. And how did, how did that happen? She said his, his dad asked him, would you like to get a guitar lesson? So my grandfather took uh, my dad, nine-year-old, on a Friday to see a guy named Tillman Franks. Mm -hmm. So Tillman's an upright bass player, does the hayride, giving guitar lessons, songwriter. In fact, he was the songwriter on I'm a Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. So he's a writer on that. He worked as uh, uh, the bass player for Johnny Horton for many years. Anyway, that's who gave Dad this first guitar lesson on a Friday. Taught my dad how to play a song called How Far Is Heaven. And the following Monday is when my grandfather died. So he's put my dad on a path he'd be on the rest of his life, just a few days before he left this world. So my dad gets to be about 11 or 12. He gets a record deal as a artist on RCA Victor. Chet Atkins plays on his first session, you know, which dad said he couldn't believe that Chet Atkins was in the room. And then my dad gets into his teens. He becomes a regular on the Hayride in Louisiana, and that's how he met mom. And like, like you said, when I was a year old, mom, dad, and myself moved to Nashville, and um, he'd given it about two weeks, thinking, oh, I'll you know, come up here to see how the music business is in Nashville. So he gave it all of two weeks before they decided they were going to go back to Shreveport. And a man named Shelby Singleton came in. He had just come back from the Mercury home office, Mercury Records in Chicago. 
They're going to open a Nashville office, and they want me to run it. I want you to be my number two guy, pay you 75 bucks a week or whatever it was. And so Dad decided to stay in Nashville. So subsequently, he finds himself in the studio playing on songs for like Leroy Van Dyke, Just Walk On okay. By, um, Harper Valley PTA, Jeannie C. Riley, uh, Stand By Your Man, Tammy Wynette, uh, Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman, Elvis mm-hmm. Presley, Good Luck Charm, uh, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, uh, double album, Ringo Starr's second solo record. Also, at some point, I think he's at now at the ripe old age of 24 when he starts running Mercury Records and ran it for 21 years. So he yeah. signed Roger Miller to his deal with Mercury Records. And he ended up producing the Statler Brothers and Tom T. Hall and Johnny Rodriguez. Yeah. He signed Reba McIntyre, her first record deal. and So there's that history uh, as a producer for him as well. But yeah, yeah tons of of stuff as a guitar player. In fact, I just found out this week, because I keep finding out stuff he played on, you know, Delta Dawn. Yeah, Kenya Tucker. Somebody showed him the time card or something, and he didn't remember playing on it, but he's on the time card, so mm -hmm. So he's on that. And uh, and then, uh, what's the Johnny Paycheck? Friend, don't take her, she's all I got. I just found that out this year that he played on that. So I'm still trying to keep up with the man's discography. Yeah, with all the hits that he played on. Now, backing up a little bit, again, back to Shreveport, the Louisiana Hayride was a, a regional, you know, live radio show, and there were a lot of guitar players and musicians that came out of there. I yeah. mean, of course, your dad, like James Burton. Burton yeah. And, uh, Got a picture of my mom and James Burton singing on stage, or he's playing, she's singing when they were 15. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, James Burton and Joe Osborne. Yeah, bass player, uh-huh. part of the, you know, kind of wrecking, wrecking crew. crew. Yeah, mm-hmm. all those guys, you know, and uh, Roy Buchanan was also kind of part of that scene, but a little bit later. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, I think talent. he was after uh, after your your dad. So you moved to, to uh, you moved to Nashville. Your dad, you know, is a record executive and session guitar player. And well, you know, I have to say that uh, you know one of the uh, most infamous records that your dad produced was uh, you know the the Statler Brothers. The, uh, the Roadhog? The Roadhog. You're going to mention you know, that? Yes. Okay, I'm he, mentioning that. just lost my dad as a viewer. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of those records he will say he did, but I think maybe the car was running out back the whole time or something. No, that was a phenomenal, and that's so funny, <laughs> even to this day, some of the best, it's the funniest stuff I ever heard on record. Yeah, I, uh, some Lester you know, Roadhog Moran and, and his the, Cadillac Cowboys. Yeah, Cadillac. Cadillac. Cowboys. Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. That is an amazing album, and and you know it's you know you can you can find it easily, and it is one of the funniest you know kind of comedy albums, and I, I think one of the highlights is when they do uh, "Hello Walls," "Hello Darling," and "Ain't It Funny How Time Slips, slips Away", away yeah. as one song. They, yeah. they blend all three of them together. It's like a on purpose train wreck thing. Yes, yeah. There, there was a twelve minute segment I think on an album called Country Music Then and Now where they just kind of introduced that as a segment on that record, but then they subsequently did a live at the Johnny Mac Brown High School. Uh, Johnny Mac Brown Johnny Mac High Brown, School. Each and every Saturday night, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know that wasn't... I, apparently, the Statler brothers were not... They got tired of that. Well, it, it yeah. wasn't they got tired of it. They saw that they had sort of created a little monster there because they'd be doing their show and somebody in the audience is hollering for Roadhog, you know. Yeah. And so they were like, well, we didn't mean for this to happen, you yeah. know. A, a quick aside, uh, Red Volkart was mm. asked by uh, by them to fill in for their uh, sick guitar player, and Red said, you know, I will only do it if you ask me as the Roadhog. 
<laughs> and he had to think twice about it. Yeah, a lot but of he, people won't know what we're talking about, yes. but they sang Happy Birthday on my 16th birthday, and I have a tape yeah. of it. Of as the, the Roadhawk. As the Roadhawk. Oh, yeah, man, it's horrible. <laughs> it's awful. Okay, well, let's, let's get back onto, onto, yeah. onto your story. So you, you, you come up in this, you know, very musical family, you know, you're, you're hearing, you know, Roger Miller and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, records that your dad produced and played yeah. on and all, all, all these things. And you're, you're growing up in that. At what point do you decide I'm going to be a guitar player? Well, um, earliest childhood memories, house in Gillettsville, walk into the basement from the car garage and, uh, there's his guitar cases, maybe an amp or two, upright piano right here and a Seaberg 100 jukebox on the wall right there. That was my first record player. Yeah. Instead of this, it was a Seaberg 100 that had 45s in it, and my dad showed me how to find the toggle switch in the back of the jukebox, turn it on, and then punch the, you know, the letters and the buttons and the numbers and play these records. And so it was a lot of, you know, like dad's instrumentals were in there that he would mm -hmm. do for Mercury. Um, but Buster Brown, Fannie Mae was in there, um, some Roger Miller records. Uh, just There was a little bit of a touch of R&B, soul music, and, and country that was in there in the jukebox. And um, that was, I'd sit on, I'd reach back there and turn this thing on, and I would shock myself. If you touched any other part of the jukebox when you touched the toggle switch, it would zap you. Yeah. But I, it was worth it, you know. I'd turn that thing on, and I'd sit down on the floor, and those those. Jukeboxes, I know I'm probably romanticizing a bit here, but it, it, I could feel the floor shake a bit, and they sounded loud even if they weren't. They just had that sound, you know. So I would sit there and close my eyes even as like a six-year-old kid and dream of making music someday like my dad. You know, I just thought that was what I'm supposed to do. And, and at some point I would, you know, ask him, you know, if I could play this guitar and I think the first song I learned how to play, though, was on the piano. He taught me how to play Stand By Me when I was seven, you know. But, but at some point, I'm, you know, wanting to pick up those guitars. And, you know, I got to be in my teens. He gave me a Telecaster for Christmas when I was 15. And then the first time he hires me to come play a session with him to do an overdub on a Johnny Rodriguez couple of songs, he wanted to play. He played my Telecaster because I wanted to play one of his guitars. And so I was already doing the, I call it the Jerry Seinfeld joke about the remote, you know, the women want to know what's on TV, the men want to know what else is on TV. So like, what other guitar can I play? Whatever right. I'm holding, what other guitar can I play? I'm doing that as a kid because he's got these guitars laying around. So I started, um, I think when I was 15, Christmas, two months later, doing a talent show with Jerry Reed's daughter singing and my friend Joey Muskeo, Joe Muskeo's son, Joe was in the Imperials and so, you know, we had some second-generation music kids there, uh, and Jerry Reed would walk into the room when we were rehearsing, freak me out, you know. I mean, he walked up on stage the first time we went to go play this show. And I'd been playing guitar for two months and turned my amp up. Son, this is what they come to hear, you know. Yeah. He's turning my amp up. I'm going, no, 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 this is not necessary at all, you know. Plus, I don't want you to hear it. And then my dad's sitting on the front row the night we played this first talent show in February and uh, after that Christmas and told my friend sitting next to him, I didn't know he knew how to play the guitar. I've been quietly, you know, kind of learning. Mm -hmm. So uh, I forget what you asked me, but I, I mean, I've gone down, I've chased no, a few rabbits away. It's, and, a, it's, it's great. And I, was, I wanted to hit upon the fact that, you know, again, with your, your dad being a, a record exec and, and session player, 
you knew, you know, you you kind of had these guys coming over to the house like Jerry Reed, Man. you know, who are some of the one of the highest regarded, you know, guitar players of all time. Dad reminded me the other day that Rory Burke, who wrote, co-wrote uh, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, Charlie Rich, started, he was working on that song the day he came over to our home in Goodsville, and we all went out on the dead end in front of the house and played baseball. Hmm. So I was seeing these guys when I was growing up, and of course the Nashville Cats, as they've been described, you know, were just like, I wanted to be those guys. And I'll be honest with you, when I was a very young kid, it started off, I want to play guitar. I want to do what my dad is doing. Mm -hmm. I want to do that. And then when I got older and actually started to attempt that, I was at some point saying to myself, do I really want to do this? Because that's a guy's casting a pretty big shadow there. Yeah. And um, so I went through that too where, uh, do I really want to do this? You know. But I've never done anything else. I mean, that's the only thing I've ever done. And you know, credit to my dad for providing the instruments that were there, the environment. You know, Mercury Records would send to our house maybe four times a year a, a box, you know, like this, full of albums. Mm -hmm. And so me and my two brothers, Brian and Shelby, would go into that box, and it looked like soldiers, you know, getting letters from home, you know. And I would say, I'll take Bachman Turner Overdrive and Rush and Rod Stewart. You know, every picture tells a story, and... You know, Shelby's grabbing the R&B and the funk and Brian's getting the country records and everybody's going to their rooms and putting the needle down on those records. And so I had this steady diet of music that the label was sent into the house. And at some point, my dad shared with me that um, Mr. Steinberg in Chicago at the home office was wanting to know what his son liked out of this batch of records because... Mm -hmm. He had gone to a meeting up there, and they sort of had their quarterly meeting. You know, here's the State of the Union, what's going on, this single's doing this, blah, blah, blah. Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story, which the title cut from that album is out, and it's doing pretty good on the radio and everything. My dad just casually mentions, my son really likes Maggie May from that record. So when they end up putting that song out later, and it blows up. Dad says he goes to the next meeting, what's your boy like on this, you know? So, but my A&R days actually go back earlier to when I was four. <laughs> and my dad will tell this story on the Ken Burns documentary that comes out in a month. He's producing Roger Miller, this new act. He's signed to Mercury, and he's got this album, and he's chosen this first song as a single, and it's called Got To Again. You used to love me once, and now you got to again, Roger Miller. And he puts the test pressing record at home on the turntable down in the basement at that home in Gillisville. And when he gets to dang me, me and my brother Brian, who's two, mm -hmm. in just our underwear only, come tearing down the steps and run in and just start boogieing to this song. And my dad's looking at us and he said to himself, uh-oh, and called Mr. Steinberg. How hard is it to change the A-side on Roger's first single? How sure are you about this? We've pressed 5,000 discs already. Yeah. He said, I'm sure. So they changed it to Dang Me, based on the, the two <laughs> underwear A&R boys, you know. That, uh, is, that is ridiculous. I know, but I just found this out when he's telling the Ken Burns people on the documentary. I've never heard that story before. I mean, that is, I mean my kids love that song. Of course. You know, it's like I, I started playing them some Roger Miller you know, in the last you know, year or so, Yeah. and uh, immediately they loved Dang Me. I mean, they just loved that song. Well, and yeah. he would end up writing all the music for a Robin Hood right. Disney movie, yeah. which is funny because 
years go by, and in 2002, Disney calls me. Would I write a song for The Fox and the Hound 2? Yeah. And so I ended up chasing the song they needed and told me we need a this song for this, we need an up-tempo song. They're going to be you know, chasing each other over the fences and through the creeks and all this stuff. They need an up-tempo thing. But I had this other song that I'd started with Blair Masters, keyboard mm-hmm. playing friend of mine, great. Um, he had just played these changes one day in the studio on the, p- the piano, and it was... Whoa. I was expecting it to go back... There, because that's Roger Miller, engine, engine number nine, right? Right. So it was very familiar to me. But when he went back to that, I said, can we, let me put that down. Let's work on that. So we fleshed out a little bit of this music thing. But then when the Disney thing presented itself later, you know, I would go write a lyric to that piece of music, send it to the whole song, send it to them, because they only wanted Mm -hmm. a verse and a chorus of the other thing. And they called back a couple weeks later and said, we like the chase scene. So finish that. And this other thing that we didn't ask you for, I'm like, oh, yeah. my gosh, here it comes. And they said, we love that. Yeah. We're going to create a place in the movie for it. So even going back to when I was a kid, listening to Roger, you know, most families would say they're, you know, I, I hear a lot of families talking about their favorite TV shows they all watch together, Partridge Family or whatever it was. Um, mine was sitting in the living room or the den and watching a seven and a half reel-to-reel tape machine spinning and staring at two speakers and it was whatever they'd done that day in the studio with Roger, Statler Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis. or, And then occasionally my dad would bring home some record that would just have knocked him out, he would say, and it would be Hey Jude yeah. or something. So now I got this other group of fellas sitting on this other shoulder for my songwriting influences to add to Roger Miller and the stuff that dad was working on, uh, bringing home fresh from the studio. So I had it really good. Yeah, uh, with the records coming to the house, dad walking in with those tapes, you know, and wanting the family to hear what they had done in the studio that day. So it, it, I never got over that. I still, I still. I mean, I'm from, and you may have done this too. We would call our friends. You got to come over here and listen to this record. I don't know that anybody does that now. Yeah. Now they would text it and it would say, "You got to come over here and listen to the first ten seconds of this song mm-hmm. before we go to the next one." You know. So it's different, different day and age now. But that was. The stuff that formed formed me. Yeah. Were you going down to the studio much before? I, I, I guess you were being called to to play on things. So, uh, you know, but were you were you going down to the studio and seeing some of these other session players? And I would such? go watch. Yeah. I would go watch and um, yeah, and want to do that. Yeah. And then the first time I got to do that, I was scared out of my mind. But fortunately for me, I sat next to a gentleman named Chip Young. Yeah. Chip's on, he's doing all that great acoustic work on Jolene. He's the solo on Billy Swan's I Can Help, which he also produced. And fortunately for me, that's who I sat by the first time I went in to do a tracking session because that guy who could have looked at me like, who are you? What are you doing here? And he just kind of reached over and grabbed me and said, hey, let me show you how to do this. Here's how to, you know, keep your strings sounding new without changing them all the time. He'd show me these things and just, you know, the number charts and all that stuff and help me where I was, you know, get just when I was starting to get into doing that stuff. He would, he was so kind to me. And the last record he ever did, he did in this studio. He asked me if he'd use my studio to come do a thumb picking instrumental album. And I just gave him this place and he wanted to pay me for it. I told him, no, 
And then one day I'm sitting here working on something a few months after we had done his record. He walked in the door and said, hey, I got something you need to try out when you get a chance. And he left this bag here and it had a, it was a Neumann vintage microphone. Wow. So I put it up and immediately just like, where's the spot welder? I want to just keep it there for guitars, acoustics, and vocals. And I don't know, maybe a month or two go by and I call his wife, Diane, I need to come back, uh, bring this mic back to you. Oh, no, he gave that to you. He gave that to you. So there's a piece of him in the studio. That was a mic that was in the Young and Sound uh, studio that he ran for many years. Wow. Probably Jerry Reed probably sang on it. It might have some wintergreen snuff in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, these are the people that I was fortunate to come up watching and then to get to sit in the room with them at some point and learn from the best that this town has ever seen. I mean, those guys are just... They're phenomenal, you know, what they what they accomplished. My dad, when he got inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame with the A-team players, when Brenda Lee inducted them, said these seven gentlemen collectively account for over 130,000 recording sessions. And so that I can't wrap my head around that, but that's, you know, that that's the reason why, you know, it explains my dad, you know, driving the, the car everywhere we would go when I was a kid, always reaching for the volume knob, going, I think I played on this. I think I played on this, you know, and this would go on for three hours or 10 hours yeah. we driving to Shreveport, you know. So that's the house I grew up in, and it's, it's I was just submerged, immersed in that, you know, yeah. um, environment. <laughs> So you you grow up in this in this environment in your home, and then uh, you you start getting more and more serious about playing. You've played on some sessions, and then you go to Belmont University, mm -hmm. and you start running into players like Dan Huff. Or did you start meet did you meet him early? I met Dan when we were in high school together. Okay, and we had a little group in high school, and so we would play the assemblies and you know after a football game dance or occasional thing like that. But we would uh, spend a lot of time in the hallway during activity periods or study halls where we were on the headmaster's list where we could spend that time doing whatever we wanted to do. For some reason or another, Mr. Brown and, the, and them, they let us sit out in the hallway with our guitars, you know? And so we were sort of, he was a guy that really pushed me to get serious about the guitar because it was always something that I would, you know, because I was doing sports and, and focused on that and the guitar would, you know, was a part of me then. At Dan, it was like, way he was way more serious about it. And so he kind of lit that fire under me to kind of try to keep up with him, which I still would, you know, have to get better at, to get close to what he does. World-class guitar player. Uh, and he would hi ultimately hire me to come play some sessions at one point, which I th thought, that's hilarious. You can do this. You can do this better. What anything I can do, you know. Yeah. But he just wanted me, you know, come in and do things. And so I did some sessions for him, but I, yeah, when I went to Belmont, uh, I was in a group called the Belmont Reasons for two years, which is like this publicly re public relations thing that would play either high schools to introduce kids to Belmont yeah. or churches. You know, we just go and do performances at churches. So we had two different outfits that we wore, you know, um, 
always looked like we were on the Lawrence Welk show, you know, but we'd be playing Pablo Cruz songs and, and Michael Jackson's current hit or whatever it was, Rock With You. But so I did that at Belmont, but I was also starting to develop the session playing thing when I, in those years. So I was doing everything from my friend Dan Day, who I grew up knowing, um, got the keys to RCA a studio on the weekends. So I'll go with him and get assemble a group of guys to go in and just, what can we play? So everybody can practice their craft. He wanted to learn engineering and we wanted to get better at what we were doing. So there's that going and doing all that stuff for nothing just to get into the studio, to have access to that. And then the occasional session would come up, you know, uh, Lisa Bevel is going to do something over at the studio at Hillsborough High School. So Dan, up, you come play guitar with me, yeah. And then at Belmont, there would also be students who were in uh, the music business program or one of those courses where they had to produce a session. So a lot of the, we all leaned on each other. And when it was your turn to be the producer, we'd all come play for your session and get the Belmont studio. So at every turn and playing for free, yeah. most of the time, you know, we would want in the studio just to get better and learn the ropes. and uh, But also, there was my dad who was sort of opening the door for me to come play on things that he was producing. Becky Hobbs, Jackie Ward, the Johnny Rodriguez thing I told you about was the first session I ever did. And that was just me and him doing overdubs together, and we did a twin part on a song. And we plugged direct into the console. You know, the first time I ever worked with my dad, we just ran into the board, you know. Um which is a it's a cool thing, you know. At that point, you just need to be playing the right thing, yeah. You know, because you, you're not going to get uh, covered up with a lot of camouflage and hey, look over there or listen over there. You know, it's pretty naked. So play the right part. Play the right, and that's what my dad always did. That's the thing about him. When I think of him as a guitar player, how to describe him is he always played the right stuff, the right stuff. And um, how, how do you play the right stuff? How do you learn to play the right stuff? I think it's some. I think there's a, a very overtly healthy respect for the song that has to be there innate in somebody, you know. And I won't say any names because I'm not even sure that I could say names or whatever. But I'm sure there are guitar players in this town that they're driving in for the session and they already know in their head what they want to play, you know, that day. And what I mean, I've had a guy tell me on a session that he's going to, I'm going to play the solo and it's going to sound like Lincoln Park, and he hadn't heard the song yet. I'm like, first of all, I play guitar, and this doesn't sound like Linkin Park. And I mean, but I'm, so there's some sometimes a preconceived. This is my moment. This is what I want to do. And right. how does your song go? Yeah, you know, comes back. To, are yeah. you serving the song? Or are you serving yourself? And you can tell that in a writer's round too. You know, who's there to try to demonstrate what they know how to play versus somebody that's listening to your song and and if you need me, just nod that kind of thing. I mean, the, yeah. so my dad always had to <clears throat> play the right thing for the song, you know, um, and that's important, you know, that's very important. Uh, I mean, when I think about the Beatles, I don't think there were any virtuoso guitar players in the group, but they played the right stuff, you know, and it served the song, right? So, that, so I just kind of was learning that early on, you know, what made Roger Miller great was his songwriting. And so you wouldn't want to do anything in the production of that song as a player or whatever that that pulled you off of the fact that just listen to this song, you know? So I just had that from the, the beginning. <clears throat> On Roger Miller, it was funny, you know, listening how important his own guitar playing could be to it and how he would 
sometimes played these lines where he would sing a harmony to the dang to me. the yeah dang me where he, <clears throat> he's he's singing a harmony part to the line that he's playing on the guitar is and you know that he was trying to show Harold Bradley what to play on dang me dad said at some point Harold who was probably sitting there dressed nicer than anybody on the session maybe a tie and a jacket Jerry he said help come over here he said Rogers want me to play this thing and and Harold when he would do it it was very coming from a schooled guitar player. Right. And Harold was a magnificent guitar player, but it just didn't have that greasy thing that Roger did. And I don't know if it would come out if I, but Roger sang the harmony. Yes. He's singing, yes. and he's actually playing the guitar part on the record. He's playing the harmony and singing the stuff with, you know, yeah. On the record, that's him. Yeah, because when you when you just listen to it, you enjoy it and you think it's great, and then you start trying to learn the song, and you realize, oh wait a second, it's a little more complex than I thought. And listen, listen to what what's being done here. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, that his writing. Yeah. And the, the internal rhyme yeah. scheme and the, just the phrasing and everything that he did. There's never been another guy like that, you know. Yeah. So so dad, you know. He would just do the right stuff on a session. Now, there was one time where he did, in his mind, the wrong stuff that was the right stuff. And that was on Harper Valley PTA. Okay. Shelby Singleton was producing this record that was written by Tom T. Hall, by the way, um, for Jeannie C. Riley. And my dad told me recently, he said he recalled the session, Shelby Singleton, the producer, saying, JK, I want you to, on the dobro, and he had a fretted dobro, yeah. to fill from the first verse. So, you know, Dad's doing the intro. On a fretted dobro, right? Mm -hmm. And then he plays the fills in the first verse while she's singing, I won't tell you all the story about And then he stopped after the first verse and Shelby stopped the session and said, no, I want you to play from the first verse through Meaning the whole the song. Right. So my dad thought he was crazy. Yeah. And said, I'll show him that that he's asking for too much. So he said, next thing he knows, he's doing all the, yeah. doing those kinds of yeah. licks. And he said, that'll make him back off. And, and then when they did it, he was like, that's it. Yeah, because <laughs> so, he, yeah. your dad thought he was overplaying he on was purpose and, and, to, and proving a yeah, point. He was trying to yeah. play himself out of the role. You yeah. know? And uh, it ended up being, that's exactly what he wanted. And you know, they put his name on the, the 45 label, Dobro really? by Jerry Kennedy. Wow. And I heard a radio DJ back announce his name on the record uh, one time on the radio, and I just thought, that's odd. They don't ever yeah. tell the session players, you know. Yeah. But it was on the label. I found yeah. that out years yeah. later. So you're at Belmont, and how does, how does the band Whiteheart come together? Well, okay, so in 1984, the summer of 84, my friend Dan Huff, who was on the first two albums that the group had done, he asked me, he called me and said, I need to go, I want to go play some sessions in LA. Could you sub for me for three shows? Summer of 84. And I quit the band six years later because he never came back. Right. Oh, well, he stayed out there for about five years. Yeah. And um, he got very established as a session oh, yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah. And then he came back and conquered this town too. Yeah, as a producer and session. Right. Player. So uh, in the meantime, I had done the three shows. And then when the, he wasn't going to come back, they just asked, can you keep going, you know? So like I said, I stayed in it for six years. Yeah. Now that that band that, you know, 
Whiteheart was more of a you know contemporary Christian band. You were playing. Uh, what what kind of gear and such were you using at that time period to produce that you type know, of? We you know. just did a 30-year anniversary of the Freedom Album show a couple of months ago. Yeah, which was a big record and very influential. Yeah, and um, so Tommy and Chris and I were a rhythm section on stage for the first time in probably 20 years when we did the Chris Gaines, Garth Brooks stuff. So that was the first time the three of us had been on stage together in 20 years, and we had a blast. But, so, but I, re- I remembered back during the Whiteheart touring years, I never had a pedal board. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's okay. I, I just had, I plugged my guitar into either a, when I first started, it was a Mesa Boogie. Uh-huh. And then uh, I think I finished like the last tour, I think, with the Freedom Album. I did a Marshall. Yeah. And then to get real fancy, I took up the mic that was on the 412 cabinet and processed it through an Eventide H3000 post mic. Mm-hmm. So I, I never had a pedal board in that group. Did you have a rack? No. No. So you just had an amp. Yeah. No delay. Yeah. yeah. It's like Frampton at Rockin' the Fillmore. I said, yeah. what is your rig <laughs> on that show? And he said, Les Paul, Cable, 100-watt Marshall. That's yeah. it. I said, yeah, that's it. All right. So, but I mean, that's what I was using back yeah. then. And it, I think there was a freedom being the operative word here in not having to with all the tap dance that can be a pedal board sometimes. Right. I mean, I see people playing stuff in a church service that looks like, you know, I mean, how do you negotiate this? Yeah. And it's just not in my wheelhouse to even want to set up sounds for something, you know. I would much prefer to plug into an amp and let's get to the song and then and think about what you can do to the guitar sound maybe a little further down the road or something. But So I've always kind of approached things that way. Um, even with my the, the Gar thing, you know, I, I need like basically an overdrive. And I really don't need much ambience, maybe a slight delay here and there. But we're in a stadium, so yeah, Dan but, Hines running in front of house doesn't want me up there with... A bunch of delay and no, such because it'll, it'll get no, lost. Yeah, and yeah. there's sometimes, you know, there's three or four guitars playing on a song. Yeah. I mean, there's some songs where Garth has got an electric, I'm playing electric, John Kinch under the stage is grabbing an electric and giving some power chords or something, you know, and then there's a couple of acoustics. So yeah. he doesn't want the stuff yeah. getting in the muddying up the signal. Yeah, because you've, you've only got so, m- so much frequency range and it's kind of, it's yeah. getting taken over. And so, and for guitars back in Whiteheart, I had my first ever Telecaster I took the neck off of it and had Joe Glazer build me a Strat body. And then I had two different Strat bodies from him that had Floyd Rose tremolos on them because the 80s, it was, uh, you yeah. know, they come and get you if you didn't have it. If that. you didn't do a dive didn't bomb. have it, yeah. yeah. And so I had a telly neck on one of the Strats with a Floyd Rose. And that particular Strat was done in a, a finish that changed colors with heat. Like it was black <laughs> yeah. and it would get hot. It would turn green. And if you, like my arm was really hot, it would turn blue. Yeah. So that was one guitar. And the other one was a, just, uh, and that had a single humbucker in it. The other one had a humbucker and then two single coils. So it was a little more versatile, little mini toggle switches for the pickups. Mm-hmm. And, and that got used, uh, both those guitars got used on the Freedom album, as well as my dad's 335. 
I believe, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a 355 of my dad's, which is like a 1973 stereo guitar mm -hmm. that I've had since wired mono. Um, lovely tone on that guitar. It's just really a nice tone. It's like very, the pickups are very underwound. So they're real clear and, and just, it's a tone. Um, I use those guitars. I'm trying to think if I use anything else. Oh, I use the 57 Esquire on Sing Your Freedom. That's, those are the guitars I used during, like when I was wrapping up my last record with Whiteheart. But up until then, though, it was those Glazer modified, you know, strat bodies and, yeah. yeah. Then you, after Whiteheart, you kind of got into to doing session work. Yeah, kind of yeah. when I quit, that was the reason yeah. I quit is so I could stay home. Uh, wanted to start a family. My wife and I wanted to start a family. And, and so, and Brown Bannister, who had produced the Freedom album, sort of held the carrot out in front of myself, Tommy, and Chris. You know, I'll put you guys to work in the studio. If you stay home. If you stay home. Well, he didn't say if you stay home. Yeah. But I'll, I would like to use you guys as a rhythm section. So we started playing on stuff he was producing and made it possible. And then maybe within a year... After I left, I would go to work on a record that Wayne Kirkpatrick and Brown were producing. And then Wayne would start calling me to work on stuff. So first time I worked on a project with just me and him, it was Susan Ashton's first album. Yeah, And we spent what was supposed to be a day doing a, doing a dobro solo, dobro part on a song, and then a classical uh, on another <coughs> solo. Wound up being two weeks of doing all the guitars. And that's how Wayne and I got to know each other. Yeah, I think hearing that Susan Ashton record was where I first heard you as a as a session guitarist. And again, it was your tone was much more guitar amp sounding than you know than what else was out there. So it was right. very it was very stark. Yeah, you know, hearing hearing your playing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were I think around the time I was doing that, there were a lot of guys starting to show up with the refrigerator size yes. racks, and yeah. and I remember. A producer telling me you should get a Bradshaw rig during those years, and so I did. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, that same producer said, "Where's your Bradshaw rig?" I said, "I got rid of it." Why? I said, "That was the most money I've ever spent on something to turn things off with." Yeah. And I, so I realized I don't need this, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so for like the Susan stuff that I did, predominantly it was a Dynacomp. And a tape echoplex, one of the old tube yeah. units. And I sit there and fix the delay time, sliding the record head, you know. And so like her first album was a lot of that. I think even the all the way through the three albums I played on of hers, the third album had a lot of fenders into Dynacomp, um, tape echoplex, and this that matchless. Yeah. That's very matchless amp, which is <laughs> you know, been very good to me. I've used it in probably 95% of the recordings I've done since I bought it in 92. Yeah. Well, let's just go ahead and talk about the amp. So this is uh, you know, unique in that it's, it's covered in, uh, in Fender you know, Tolex instead of the, the normal. Yeah. Uh, you, you were telling the story earlier. Yeah. Well, Mark Sampson and I got on the phone in 1992 to order this amp, and, and I had auditioned one at Corner Music in Nashville, mm -hmm. and it was like in five seconds I knew I wanted this one of these amps. Um, so I got on the phone with Mark, and he were d details, credit card, all that stuff, and then they were, oh, I forgot to ask you, what color do you want? Well, he was doing three colors at the time, and you remember that sort of, I think they still have that faux leather, kind of tooled mm -hmm. leather look or whatever it is. 
Um, they did black, some kind of a cinnamon red, and elk gray, it was called. And he said, what color did you want? I said, oh, that black Tolex is great. <laughs> and so, so like whenever, how many weeks go by, he delivers the amp, and I get it out. And I go, well, that's not the covering I saw in the magazine, and I saw at Corner Music. I called, and I said, what happened? Yeah. He goes, you said you wanted black Tolex. Yeah. I didn't realize. Because you, you Tolex is a specific type of, of, of covering. Yeah, I said, it's yeah. like watching... A guy leave his house in a just tear out of his house to go to the store and come back with Kleenex, you know, yeah. because I asked for a Kleenex and all he had were puffs. Yeah. You know, I, you said you wanted Kleenex. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't know there was. I just thought that was the generic term for. I thought maybe that's what this is too. I don't right. know. Right. Right. So he specified and you know my amp and two twelve cabinet into this, and he made it out of that Tolex, and so consequently. Three years ago, I had Phil Jamison build me a, a second head, mm -hmm. and it's just the right side of, of this circuit. Yeah. It was the only channel I use. Is the right side the EF86 yes. side? Yes, okay. yeah. yeah. And, With um, the multi-position So I had him do yeah. it in the black Tolex again. Yeah. So he did that, and then he made me another one this year for the Garth Tour. So just backing again on like the Susan National Records, you're mainly using Fender-type guitars and, and a Dynacomp, a tubeco plex, and that matchless amp, and that was kind of yeah. your rig, and that was not, yeah. you know, that was not what most guys were, were playing through at that point. I think I, though, subsequently sold at least a dozen of these amps to Nashville players for uh, Mark. Right. Because <clears throat> Dan Huff called me one day and goes, you got a matchless amp? Yeah. yeah. Can I come over here? So he came to the studio, walked in and played it for about 10 seconds. Yeah, I'm getting one. He left. Yeah. So he ended up getting one, and um, yeah, uh -huh. they kind of grew on the Nashville scene. So you're 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 playing on these sessions mainly for Christian artists at this point. Mm -hmm. Then you start kind of branching out with songwriting, and you know, then you know, a big breakthrough comes with uh, you know being a co-writer on on Change the World. It becomes a, a hit for Clapton, and there's a yeah. of course there's a long story about you know the the different. Uh, you know, delays and things that happened. It was supposed to be a single for Winona, and it kind of didn't. Yeah, you know, how many times we failed? Yeah, and then <laughs> and then it finally, you know, it finally hit. And then you you had this huge song that ended up getting a Grammy for for Song of the Year. Mm -hmm. You get to meet Clapton, and uh, yeah, and talk to him on the phone six years after the Grammys. Wow, his producer Simon Climey called on the phone one day. We're uh, recording one of your songs with Eric in the studio right now. I was like. Wow, you know. Um, <clears throat> wondered if you could send us your demo of the guitar parts. And again, that's for me, I'd have to go get somebody to help me do all this kind of technical stuff. And I said, well, I can probably do it in a couple of hours or so. And uh, he said, well, we're recording it right now, so we'll press on. But if you get a chance to do it, still do it. Yeah. So I hung up the phone with Simon, and, then, and I had written with Simon um, and gotten to know him a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I can close my eyes and, and see exactly how I played that song and called him back and said, I can tell you over the phone exactly what I'm doing on that demo. Well, let me put Andy Fairweather Low on the phone. Yes. So I spent about 10 or 12 minutes with him saying, you know, well, up here I'm letting these strings ring open and, you know, it's this inversion of that chord down here. <clears throat> he said, well, I, I think we, we have it. Well, listen, Eric wants to say hello. <laughs> now, I only spent, you know, 10 minutes with him after the Grammys and, it was like, you know, getting to talk to Batman for a few minutes, and then he, yeah. he's gone back to the cave or whatever. So I'm now, I'm, you know, he comes to the phone, and I'm, I'm humming, 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 you know. 
And hello, Gordon. You know, I said, hey, before you say anything else, thank you again, you know, for what you did for us six years ago at the Grammys. Oh, this is very sweet, very kind. Listen, are you using a pick or your fingers? Yeah. Just like get to the, just cut to the chase here. Yeah, tell me what you're doing. And I went, I, uh, yeah, I said, I'm, I think I'm using my fingers on that demo. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I said, what I thought. Well, we're going to give it a go. I'm not sure we'll get it as cool as your demo. I said, oh, I think you will. <laughs> so he ended up recording it, but it, the next album he ended up putting out, I think it was a, maybe it was a, a Riding with the King or something where. Yeah, the BB King <clears throat> record. Or something, yeah. yeah, something like that. But it's in the can for him. But Bonnie Raitt beat him to the to the punch yeah. and put it out as a single a couple of albums back for her. So. Yeah. Then you, you kind of really got your, your songwriting career, you know, kind of blew up at that point. And all of a sudden you were having George Strait cuts and Faith Hill and yeah. Carrie Underwood. And, and Tommy and Wayne and I, after the Change the World thing happened at the Grammys and, you know, people were asking us to come play this benefit and that thing and this. And at some point we looked at each other and at this point, too, the song had been on in, number one on the charts for like 13 consecutive weeks. And then it ended up being on the top 20 Billboard AC charts for a record 81 straight weeks. Yeah, it got a lot of play. And so we said to each other, the three of us should write another song. So we ended up writing a total of nine things together, 11 songs, I'm sorry, and nine of them got recorded. So we had this period of time there where, I mean, even Bonnie Raitt, will you guys write me a song? I mean, my gosh, that's the biggest thing to happen as a result of the Clapton thing was instead of us writing a song, trying to figure out how to get it to, some of these people were asking us if we would write a song. Right. And so that was a big uh, change for us. And then Garth would come along in 99 and want to dive into the three Mine, Wayne's, Tommy's catalogs for the songs for the Chris Gaines project. Right. And we went and did a bunch of stuff with him that year for that record. And, you know, they beat him up pretty bad over it. Right. But I've told him, even yesterday, I said, if you ever put that uh, in your book, the chapter title should be, everybody that heard it loved it, everybody else hated it. Yeah. And that's the truth about that record. But yeah. we had a blast. What an adventure. Every time we get around him, it's, it's just joy, you know, making music and doing whatever it is he's got in mind to do that day. Yeah, we're doing that, you know. Yeah. Um, we were in the pool with scuba gear yesterday, you know, getting ready for a video shoot next week. So, yeah, yeah we're doing that. And so it's always what's yeah. next, you know. But it was, it was um, uh, you know, our, our songs for that record. And, and, yeah, it just, that was, our, my phone started ringing for a totally different reason yeah. there for a while. Was it similar things with, like, uh, Faith Hill and George Strait and, some, and Carrie Underwood, were those where you had just written the song, or were you getting requests to write songs by that point? Or um, I could go into Mark Bright's office and play him a song for Carrie Underwood mm -hmm. rather than getting it to my publishing company. They send the song plugger out, and the song plugger has to like it before they take it to the people they got to play it for, and maybe the right. A&R people has to like it before they play it for the artist. And So there's always some kind of a... Yeah. You know, a path, to, and it's there's no right and a wrong way to do it. It's just sometimes it's different. But, yeah, there was a time, and I suppose in some way, to still have that on your calling card or whatever, open doors, the biggest for me might be Peter Frampton. Because, you know, here's what happened there. My brother Shelby and a guy named Bobby Reimer who worked at the publishing company, Almo Irving, where Peter, the Nashville office where Peter was a writer, 
they got together and said, we need to put these two guys together. So they go to Peter Frampton and they've done their homework like you have for the interview today. And they tell him my whole life story. Mm-hmm. Do you, would you want to write with this guy? And the change the world thing, it just happened. So, uh, so he's got a little bit of these twist marks on his arm, right? They come to me. You want to work with Peter Frampton? Yes. Yeah. So I've got the pinch marks on my arm, you know, but yeah. that's how we got together. So I, I wonder uh, often if the change the world thing weren't uh, right up there. That somebody, you know, Doug Howard, my publisher, said, "Thank you, thank you for this whole that whole scenario." That was the first song I turned into him on my deal with him. But he was after the Grammys. He was like, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." I never have to tell your story again. Yeah. So now he can go somewhere and say, "You want to write with the writer of that song?" Mm-hmm. And so it makes that kind of a difference. Um, it's, it's your foot in the door. Yeah. And then yeah. just being able to bypass all those gatekeepers and where you can kind of go straight to a producer yeah. and play him some songs instead of even, even if you don't feel like you know, demoing a song, you can just go in and play it for him if you want to. Yeah, and we've gotten things done that way, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's one of those things that just sort of changes the whole scenario for you. Yeah. Another album, that, uh, collaboration, was the uh, Mosaic album with Ricky Skaggs. That was a, a huge departure for him. Boy, where because uh, you know, he had he had had his bluegrass years, then he had had like the Emmylou and and his country career, and then he kind of went to bluegrass again, and then he did this you know record that very much had your stamp on there. You you co-wrote or wrote most of All the songs. The songs. Yeah, okay. and he, but he wanted that. Yeah, I was told it's because Phil Madeira and I had written a song <clears throat> for the Hornsby Skaggs record, and then a couple of years later. Lee Groich, who works out at Ricky's studio, called me and said, you got any songs for Ricky's next record? Well, there's only one answer to that question. When a songwriter gets asked, it's, yeah. And so I hang up the phone and I start going through all my stuff and I put together a CD of songs that I thought, "Eh, if he persuades, these can be persuaded bluegrass. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of on a lark, I thought, I'm going to put on the first three songs on this record, on the CD, I mean, Things I was working on in my mind, I was going to do as a sequel to the first Dogs of Peace record I did with Jimmy Lee in '96. Right. Well, I put those on there first, and I gave the CD to Lee, and I said, "Hey, these first three songs, I just want him to know where my heart is these days." And then the rest of the songs, you know, if he wants to bend them that way, then I, you know, Lee called me within a couple of weeks and said. I listened to the, your CD. Those first three songs, that's not the direction he's going. So if you don't mind, I'm going to make a new CD with the balance of those tunes on there. I said, yeah, thank you for doing it. You know, Then two months go by, Lee called me. Well, he never heard the CD I made for him. Oh, he said, But he heard the, the one you sent originally, and he wants to do those first three songs. <laughs> I said, how's he going to do these bluegrass? Yeah. Well, he's not, and he wants to call you about it. So I waited got a call from Ricky Skaggs, and I'll, I'm telling you, I, I spent years thinking if I could just write a song for that guy, I would say, okay, that's all I need, you know. And then he did the thing with Hornsby, which was fabulous. And then here he is calling me about these, and he said, son, I love them first three songs on there. I said, how are you going to do those bluegrass? He said, I'm not. So I want to do them just like your demo, and I'm going to want you to come produce the record with me. You got a handle on that, on that Beatles sound, he said. Yeah. And... So we met, and then we talked about it, and he wanted to do that record. Thank God he wanted to do that record because that's the most powerful project I've ever been a part of in my life. 
<clears throat> we keep talking about doing a sequel, which we jokingly refer to as Mosaic. But <laughs> and the songs are ready. Yeah, it's just timing, you know. And um, also, it's these days it's kind of hard to justify going in and spending the money that we spent on the first record because people have stopped buying music. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, how much do you want to spend on this greeting card, you know, as a record that you're going to make to send out? So there's a lot of that that has to be put into the equation these days, but we're both uh, excited about that record and will remain so and hopefully get a chance to do this sequel to it. Yeah. Um, And just, boy, what a friendship um, that happened as a result of that project, too. And we're playing at Belmont's Convocation next week. Be our fourth year in a row to do that. But, yeah, so the Mosaic record, uh, that was just one of those things where I got to work with Somebody that I admired from hearing the Skaggs, uh, Rice, Skaggs and Rice record. Oh, yeah, the duet record. And yeah. Dad hired Ricky to come sing a duet harmony part on a Reba McIntyre song called Small Two-Bedroom Starter. And I went to the studio that day because I wanted to watch that guy do his thing. And I remember as he was walking out of the studio, my dad said, get a good look at that guy because he won't be available to do anything like this for long. And then, uh, you know, all the years would go by and he would call me and say about doing the song on the Hornsby Skaggs record, do you have your dad's dobro? I said, I can go get it. It's in the Musicians Hall of Fame. <laughs> and so <laughs> he said, well, can him. you bring it out of here? So I want to put it on because I had used it on the solo yeah. for the demo. So I walked in and handed him the dobro. I said, here it is. He goes, oh, no, son, I want you to play it. And yeah. now I'm back to that. Oh, no, this, isn't, <laughs> this doesn't need to happen this way. But he said, I want you to do what you did on the demo. And so yeah. we started working together, and then the mosaic thing would happen a couple of years later. Yeah. Great, great record. And, Thanks. Uh, and, you know, kind of uh, overtly having a message to it, too. And yeah. my dad came in and played the dobro on one of the songs. Wow. He just played one Jerry Kennedy lick yeah. that we, as soon as he played it, we just went, yeah. yeah. That's what we wanted him to do. And, yeah. I, and, and I was funny because he went out and sat down in the chair with the dobro and mic and everything. And I went back in the control room and I thought of one more thing I needed to tell him. So I went back out through the two sets of doors and I walked in the room and my dad looked at me and said, am I fired already? <laughs> I said, no, I just forgot to tell you this one thing. And then I walked back into the control room and somebody in the in the control room, Ricky or Brent King may have been laughing at me for going all through the trouble. I said, you know, I think I just couldn't talk back to my dad. Yeah. I yeah. saw the word talk back. I said, you don't talk back to your dad. <laughs> so That's why I went out there and told him that. But he came in and played. And so, and I think about, you know, even if you think of things as a mosaic, which I tend to these days a lot more even than I used to, the fact that Ricky wanted that dobro, the fact that dad wanted that voice mm-hmm. back in the, in the 80s and that Ricky wanted that dobro has opened the door for this record to happen. And now here's my dad, the guy who's the instigator in both cases, sitting out there playing one of his signature kind of things, you know, yeah. on that thing. It's just meant to be, you know. Um, a lot of times I think about, you know, one thing changes, you know, uh, Ricky likes to think of it as uh, God wanting you to know what's the next one step to take. Because you get a lot of kids in front of us at you know, these meetings and little gatherings, seminars or whatever. That wanna, what's my two-year plan, five-year? 
uh, what's the one, the next one step you're supposed to take? And I think back to Dan Huff saying to me, can you sub for me for three shows? And if I had said I can't or no, I would not be married to who I'm married to now. There would not be the song we just discussed, Change the World, would not have happened because I wouldn't have met Tommy. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of things change, you know, as a result of just one one step. You, you wouldn't know? have said yes at that one point. Yeah, and my and then my grandfather, how would you like to get a guitar lesson? You know, okay. probably saw that he liked, you know, Roy Rogers and Tex Ritter singing cowboy movies. How would you like to get a guitar lesson? Yeah, look what that did, you know. So sometimes it's just that one thing that yeah. makes the big difference. But yeah, that album, the Mosaic record, I told Ricky, I'll go door to door with that thing for the rest of my life, you know. Great one. Thanks. Especially, uh, yeah, you can't shake Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I wrote that with Phil Madeira. He was sitting on that sofa right over there, and he was talking. We were just chatting before getting started, and I've got this MP3 player in my ear, listening and rifling through riffs, you know, that I've got. And as I heard. Uh, I'm playing that on acoustic guitar in this thing in my ear as he was talking about somebody he knew he knows, a friend of his, that had gotten away from religion because of somebody that had sort of used it as a weapon with them. Hmm. But ultimately, he said she couldn't shake Jesus. And yeah. I'm hitting, hearing that riff here as he said that, and yeah. I went, I know what we're doing today. Yeah. You know, and that's how, yeah. that's how things like that happen. Um, and, and Ricky will... Uh, he will do that as an encore at his bluegrass shows just by himself. He'll come out and do that song. So just how powerful are one-spot power supplies? Well, they're kind of like this. That's power. working with Garth uh, with the, the Chris Gaines. I guess you had, you'd had a, a cut before that. One song. So. And, he, you know, the Chris Gaines things goes back to uh, the early 90s when Wayne Kirkpatrick and I, after we had done the Susan Ashton, some Kim Hill records, and he was producing, then we challenged ourselves to let's write some songs. And so we actually put together a little group and yeah. did some songs in the studio. Right. That was Dogs of Peace? Well, no. This no. was uh, <laughs> that was before Dogs of Peace. This okay. was like 1991. Tommy Sims and Chris McHugh came to do the tracks with us, and we cut four songs in the studio. And on the day we were cutting these tracks, Tommy said, you know, is this something this group could do? And started playing. Playing these changes, right? Right. And, and so I was, I'm sitting there thinking, that sounds enough like McCartney. I like it. Wayne's probably thinking, sounds enough like Fogelberg. I like it or whatever, you know. And, and Tommy's probably thinking, I hope this doesn't sound too much like Stevie Wonder for these guys. And, but there's so many influences piled into that one song is the reason why it right. works on so many levels. But but we had gone into the studio, and I think the name of our group was going to be the Mute Brutes of Labor. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell people, I said, well, you know, we ended up not getting signed, and 
the guy at the label in New York heard Change the World and said, yeah. I'm going to pass. I just don't hear the hit. Yeah. But I think, you know, all these years later, it's like, and it would be about, let's see, four years would go by before we would hear, you know, Clapton doing that song. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, uh, the Mute Roots of Labor, if we had been the ones to do that song, put it out, might have given that copyright the equivalent of a nice funeral. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea. There's no way to know now, but Clapton did it. So it's like, that was what was supposed to happen. So glad we didn't get signed and, you know, things happened the way they did for other reasons. And, but yeah, we had, uh, Wayne and I, um, you know, were working on uh, Susan Ashton records and, and, and at some point, you know, we challenged ourselves to start writing uh, some songs. And, and so, uh, and I forget what you how we started this, but we're talking about Garth and Dark Spaces. Yeah, so so those songs that we did, the first batch of tunes that Wayne and I were writing, my brother Brian, who was he had been hiring this guy named Garth Brooks to come sing demos, mm-hmm. and so now Garth's career is established and he's in the stratosphere. But Brian would tell me every once in a while, "Hey, I gave Garth." Uh, your demos, those, these first four songs, he wanted me to tell you you got a speeding ticket in Arkansas listening to the song White Flag. Okay. Okay, I'll put that on my resume, you know, and Garth got a speeding ticket listening to this. But those would be the foundation of what he would ask for later for the Chris Gaines project. Okay. Those four songs and then what else you got. So he, like I said, he dove into our catalog, uh, Tommy's and Wayne's and mine and bunch of stuff we had written together, some of those other songs uh, that we thought, we should write some more songs, you know. Um, anyway, that's that's how the Chris Gaines thing came about. I was, I got called one day, this would have been in 1999, early 99 maybe. Garth said, I, I, I need you to come put some overdubs on a tune. I'm going to put you in the studio with this guy that's just moved here from Australia, Keith Urban. So he and I got along fabulously. And, but as I was leaving the studio that day, Garth said, oh, by the way, I need some songs. Um, and he started telling me about this movie called The Lamb. And I won't bother to tell you now because it's what everybody in the media failed to or failed to want to understand what the premise was. But in a nutshell, uh, a record company realizes as an artist is worth more deceased. So they have him killed. That's, and so he was going to be the artist, and this collection of songs that we did for him were going to be representing that artist's greatest hits. So right. he wanted the disjointed nature somewhat. He wouldn't let us recut the tracks because yeah. um, he wanted them to be not quite consistent, like all done in the same day sounding. So that's how that came about. Wow. So then you, uh, so, but you're working with Garth again now. So yeah. how, did, how, did, how did that transpire? You're, you're playing, playing shows with him. Well, um, the first time I would go and do things with him was in 99, doing the Chris Gaines stuff. And we basically just went out and did a lot of TV shows, you know, Saturday Night Live, Austin City Limits, The View, Good Morning America. And, and those were the guys that played on the record. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. Tommy so Tommy, Sims, Chris, yeah. Crystal Taliaferro came and played percussion. She was the only one not living here. And uh, Wayne, Blair Masters, Jimmy Lee Slokes. We had Jimmy Lee Slokes and Tommy Sims in the same band. It's like, okay, who's going to be the best bass player in the world today, you know? And yeah. the other guy might play keyboards or guitar. Tommy would, you know, do guitar too. And he's a great guitar player. So you, you did those, those, you know, kind oh, of Oh, we TV were doing all things. these TV shows yeah. with Garth. And so at some point he would, um, 
asked me in, I think it was not, uh, 2007, November of 2007, he said, now he'd been retired at this point for a while. Um, he called me up and said, hey, I'm going to find a city in the middle of the country. I'm going to uh, book a venue and we're going to sell a show. And then if we sell a second show, it'll go in reverse from November 12th going in reverse, the more shows. And he said, probably do two, maybe at the most three shows. Well, he sold nine. Hmm. But I, I was, you know, he, I said, well, why, why do you need me to do this? Well, we can't find one guitar player and this other guy doesn't need to do it or whatever. It was reasoning um, for wanting me to do it. So I joined for the first time into the country band um, and to do his country music because I had to learn about 28 or 30 songs or something. And I went to the Sprint Center in Kansas City and played nine straight nights doing Garth's country stuff. And uh, and then we did uh, five sold out. And that was in the Sprint Center, nine nights. January of 2008, can you come back and do it again at, at uh, Staples Center in Los Angeles for the firefighters? So we did five full two-plus-hour shows in two nights. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so that was my first venture into doing his country stuff, 2008. And then for some reason or another, and it's, it's so great. This is to me how, uh, going back to that mosaic thing and how God every once in a while just do something that's so obvious. I once uh, saw a clip of you speaking and you were talking about wood and you were talking about looking at growth rings and you were talking about yeah. uh, how, you know, when you're looking at the growth rings on a tree, uh, the further apart they are, the the more water and the easier time it had. And how when they were closer together, the uh, the tree had had a more difficult year. Yeah, that is uh, from a devotional that John Elliott sent me, a friend of Ricky Skaggs. He talked about his teacher, and my teacher did it too, fourth grade, brought in the ring from the tree, you know, and showed us that each ring represents a year. But his teacher went further and said what you just said about, you know, the further the growth rings are, the more the tree got rain and nutrients out of the soil it needed for that growth year. Yeah. But the tighter growth rings represented a tree that struggled to survive, yeah. the tighter. But that's the wood that makes the better sounding board for instruments. And so John's, his text uh, or his email to me with that, that uh, devotional is a sort of, Stating that, you know, sometimes when we struggle, you know, our story becomes more riveting to somebody else. I think of Louis Zamperini, who, who was the subject of un right, unbroken. unbroken. Yeah. I mean, when he tells his story, it's you're on the edge of your seat and not yeah. breathing, you know. Yeah. It's because he went all through that, that when he tells a story, it's more that way. And because that's, that's a terrible story to, to tell, you know. Yeah. But it what he came home and the redemption that he experienced and wanting to go back and forgive his captors and that whole thing, I would say those are some tight growth rings and, yeah. but how that's manifested in his being a soundboard for this other message at some point in his life yeah. is so critical, you know, and, and definitely is uh, an example of that, what you yeah. just mentioned. How has that manifested in your life? Um, you know, in some ways I would, I would be the, the reverse of a Louis Zamperini. I have a dad who, you know, had guitars that were accessible and 
um, you know, the biggest thing I had to overcome because of my dad was just being the son of that guy, yeah. you know, which makes things a little interesting sometimes because, you know, you are always wondering in the studio, are, th- are people assuming I'm here because, oh, your dad, you know. So, I mean, there's a little bit of that. But, I mean, for the most part, though, um, I, I haven't had any experiences that I would say were uh, on any kind of a level, like a Louis Zamorini <laughs> for sure, you know. I mean, I go and listen to my friend Jimmy Gentry, who was a coach at my, in my high school days, who was in World War II. He was among the troops that liberated Dachau, you know. And I think, you know, we played Army in the woods behind the house when I was a little kid, but, you know, we, our, my generation does not know that, what his generation went through. So uh, I feel very blessed um, to not have to had you know, experience anything like that. But I, I still try to... Uh, do the best I can with the gifts I'm given. And and I, I feel like, you know what, and I don't know how deep you get into this show with it, you know, there is a suffering that took place that is part of my story, even though it wasn't me that did it. And that's with Jesus. So that's what manifests itself to me in, in the music that I make and even what comes out of the the the, the wood that he made, you know, um, that's, that's what's most important to me, you know, not do I have to, uh, you know, suffer some great thing myself. Although, I mean, all of us do in our lives. Um, but I, I've, at the same time though, I would be somebody that is in the midst of whatever I've gone through. I'll still be sitting there counting my blessings every day yeah. forever. You know, I just feel that way. Earlier, you hit upon the point of uh, just doing that next step. What's another you know, important, you know, bit of wisdom that you've learned through the years? Well, I mean, you know, I, I was, like I said, Ricky Skaggs and I are going to do convocation at Belmont for the fourth year. This next week, we're going to do it for the fourth year. And, you know, what do you say to these students? And I'm sitting there going, well, first of all, <laughs> I sat where you all are sitting right now. I've sat there before. You're probably asking yourself, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? And what's this all going to amount to? All those questions. I said, do you want to be rich? You want to be a star? You know, you want to be famous? I said, or is this a calling that's on your life? Are you answering a calling that's on your life? I said, for me, I realized some years ago that this is indeed a calling that's on my life. And if I go back and tell the story about my dad and how he took his first guitar lesson and those circumstances surrounding his being introduced to the guitar, and then his dad leaving the, this world three days later, you know, I would say this is the beginning of seeing something as maybe this is a, something I'm called to do. Um, so I said that to them. I said, and have you ever heard this phrase? God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. I said, because I've answered the calling that I feel is on my life years ago, I have seen over the years where I've been equipped to continue to do that, be it the way a guitar finds its way into my hands, uh, a really, really, really good stomp box, you know, um, or an artist opens a door to, hey, come write, come produce, or come play live, or whatever it is, you know. I've been equipped to answer that call. I said, another way you know that this might be a calling on your life if you get called all the time. 
I said, I get called all the time to, to do certain things. And I said, that's another way you might say to yourself, oh, this is what I'm called to do, you know, like you're actually getting called to do it. So uh, I would just say, you know, that and especially for the kids that are coming out of the, you know, like the college years, you know, I always equated coming out of Belmont as being like the start of the Kentucky Derby. You know, that those green doors swing open and the horses come charging out. They're running, nostrils flared, sucking wind, and they're going. And, and in some cases, you would go, they don't even know where they're going, you know. But they know that there's somebody right here, somebody right here going, and they're all charging. And for me, that was Dan Huff and, and Jeff Balding and, and Lisa Bevel and all these, and Chris Rodriguez, you know. And I'm, I'm sitting there. We're all heading somewhere kind of the same direction, you know, but we all need each other right now, especially when you're in your younger years. I'm still working with all these people, by the way, you know, for the most part, I still cross paths with them and still work with them all these years later. But back then it was, well, there's a guy who wants to be an engineer. He ends up getting a job as a second somewhere. It gets the keys to the studio. You guys put a, a section together. Well, let's call Dan. Duncan Mullins plays bass, you know. So, and everybody's kind of, helping each other along the way early on. So a lot of times when you're just getting started with things, it's those people in the periphery that, you know, all go in the same place, they're kind of scratching each other's back. Um, the need for each other to propel all of you to go in a direction sometimes is, is uh, it's something to pay attention to early on. And, for, and I'd name the names, you know. Th- that was, you know, those were the people that were next to me coming out of those years, you know. It's kind of crazy to think about it, but yeah, I'm still working with them. And, and like you said, you're, you're still working with them. Yeah, so. Jeff Balding, he ran sound for the Belmont Reasons. Yeah. You know, he mixed the two Dogs of Peace records. He called me a few years ago and said, you want to play on Don Henley's new record? Because he was mixing Don Henley's Cass County record. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you know, but I mean, for years we've known each other. I mean, that's that's 40 years ago that we were working together and still doing things together. Yeah. Mosaic, you know. So... I had you dig up this guitar. So this is your first Telecaster. Yeah, which is on its third finish now, courtesy of one Dave Graff. Oh, yeah. He did, uh, when we did the Dogs of Peace record, the first one, Jimmy Lee Slos had a a bass, and I had this guitar. We had them both done in this gold metal flake. Being fans of Buck Owens and Don yeah. Rich, and that's not exactly like their guitars, but uh, Dave did this finish, which is phenomenal. Um, and he said after he did it that he will never, ever do that again on a guitar. He said it messed up his booth, um, something fierce. But I guess you can imagine what it would be like trying to get that. But anyway, yeah, so Dave Graff did this. But it's a, like a 74 yeah. Telecaster. It was originally a see-through blonde. Um, nice, I mean, you know, the, the, you can see the sort of the blue in the grain underneath yeah. the, the finish. It was a pretty guitar. My dad got it for me when I was 15. Wow. So then you, you like you said earlier, you had that neck on a Strat body, 
And you can tell it's got yeah. some extra holes yeah, there that's, well, there where was it had a, a lock nut. And then uh, the Floyd yep. locking nut back there. So, yeah, I've abused this guitar. Um, different course. set of tuners yep. from before. Uh, Glazer B-Bender. And uh, it was red after it was blonde. Now it's gold metal flake. The Dogs of Peace, that was also, you know, I mean, that was a, you know, a really, you know, serious, you know, band project. Right. And, uh, and you know, and that was kind of you as an artist. Yeah, and this guitar was on that record. Yeah. I mean, it was on... Uh, a little bit of a, like a James Gang meets... Yeah, me and Jimmy Lee Slos thing or something. <laughs> These are fun knobs. Yeah, I don't even remember where I got those. I just yeah. this is just one of those guitars where uh, I should regret doing yeah. all that I've done to it, but it hasn't yeah. gotten mad at me yet. So. Yeah, well, you, you personalized it. And how much do you use the B bender? Uh, a lot back in like in the '90s when I was using this guitar for a lot of sessions, mm -hmm. I was using it. Uh, I think it's on Susan Ashton's first solo record. Yeah. Uh, even the fir that first song I played on electric stuff was the Down on My Knees single. And I think I'm using the B-Bender on that track, yeah. as I remember. But yeah, I've used it. And it's funny to try to use it in the studio because you're sitting and you're having to do this in your yeah. chair, you know. You're push the neck down. Yeah. yeah, and I've actually been on stage with it before, too, where I started to move around and, and I was hearing the string going, you know. Yeah when I'm just walking because it's bouncing. So yeah. I have to be careful. But um, yeah, so I've used it on, I mean, I've been on some sessions where Dan Huff has said, I want yeah. you to use the B bender on this. And I would look at Paul Franklin and go, I apologize in advance, you know, cause he's got the best steel guitar player in the world sitting right there. But, but Dan's liked it, you know, yeah. on some songs. Um, and I, I don't even remember what year Joe did this. Um, I don't remember. It would have been in the 80s sometime, for sure. Yeah. Looks early. Yeah. And I just did originally put the original pickups back in. Okay. I had some replacement pickups in there for a while. Um, you know, one thing I've learned in working on the replica guitars with Gibson is that some of the pickups, probably starting in the early 80s and maybe late 70s even, where they were just like winding these pickups so hot and mm -hmm. mashing the front ends of the amplifiers to get overdrive, and then you plug in the Sebastian Les Paul, which is a 7.86 or something. Not only is it louder than every other guitar in the room, but it's clearer yeah. and has more, you know, uh, bite to it. So it's not always, uh, you know, so some of these pickups, you know, that are not wound as, as much for uh, being thicker sounding, I, I prefer these days. It's just more, you know, a, a more useful tone to me. You can do more with it. Yeah. So yeah, I went back to the original pickups on this. All right. Okay, we've got another telly. This is a '61 telly. Yeah. How did you how did you pick this one up? Well, um, I was doing a, a Naris block party when I was on the board of governors for Naris. It's been about uh, 1999. So we had a block party outside down off of Music Row, and a fellow named Jim Casey walks up to me, and he and Jerry Phillips son of Sam Phillips, mm -hmm. had a little radio show they were doing that was uh, part of a uh, thing in Muscle Shoals and asked me if I would come be on the radio show sometime. But it, while he was talking to me, he said, your dad is the reason why me and all my buddies back in Norfolk, Nebraska, wanted to learn to play the guitar. 
let's go to lunch, let's meet. And so I, the next time I come to see him, he hands me in the shrink wrap, Tom and Jerry, which is yeah. a, a thing that dad did with Tommy Tomlinson uh, in, in 1960. So I gave that record to dad. I said, do you even have this? He goes, well, no, not in that condition or whatever. So, um, and then I just got to get, you know, getting to know Jim at some point. He said, do you like old guitars? I said, yeah, of course. He goes, well, I, would you like to see my 59 Strat? And at that point, a 59 Strat was like a dream guitar for me. I was yeah. born in November of 59. So he said, all right, I'll bring it the next time we get together. And, and then he brought it. And then as we were walking towards the case, he started explaining to me everything that had been changed on it. And so I'm shoulders are slumping right. more and more as we get to the case. And I think by the time we opened the case, the neck was the original part or something. Yeah. It was still a cool guitar, but it wasn't all the original thing. He said, now there is this gal back in my hometown in Norfolk, Nebraska, that has a whole basement full of this stuff that I know she was trying to sell. I said, well, what all was in there? He said, well, there were guitars and amplifiers. Do you remember anything? He said, well, it seemed like Fender, uh, Vox, maybe. He said, you know what? I've got a videotape that she made where she's standing there holding all these guitars and saying, yeah. you know, here's a Fender Telecaster and, yeah. and here's a Vox AC30 or whatever. Her brother, who had passed away in 1991. So here we are in 1999, and she's got this, uh, it's a VHS tape where she's holding up all this stuff. And I'm looking at the video with Jim going, well, that looks like a, that looks like the real deal. And that, he's, so he went to his desk and he got out a phone book for Norfolk, Nebraska, which was about as thick as a comic book, you know. He called J.C. Penney's <laughs> and asked to speak to Jeannie Patrick. Is Jeannie Patrick working there? Yeah. He says that to me, he goes, Jeannie, do you know who this is? That's right. It's Jim Casey. He said, do you still have the stuff in the basement? Well, I've got a guy here who's going to buy it all. We'll get a van and come up there and pick it all up. So we drove 15 hours to Norfolk, Nebraska. And there was this 61 yeah. Telecaster. There was a hardtail Stratocaster, 1959, with stenciled in one of the pickup cavities, November of 1959, I'm like, what? <laughs> Your birth That's me, year. that's yeah. stenciled in one of my cabin. No, it's not. Um, yeah. But I was born in November of 59, so it was like, that, that's my dream guitar right there, and it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I've had people pick it up who say, oh, I hate Stratocasters, oh, I love this guitar, you know, it's just different. Weighs like a badminton racket or something, you know, real light. And uh, there was a 54 gold top with a factory Bigsby dog bone style uh, bridge. And just some really cool guitars. Um, so yeah, in 1999, I did what I called the the great guitar run of Nebraska guitar run of 1999, and picked up I think it was like 10 guitars and 11 amplifiers. Wow. Yeah, and it took us 16 hours to get back home. I think because of the extra weight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was one more hour coming back. But yeah, but so that's where this came from, and and I kind of stayed in touch with them. I wish I was still in touch with them now, but. I ended up sending them some stuff from Garth and and said, hey, watch Austin City Limits on this. I'm going to play that guitar on the show. And yeah. they were so thrilled that that the guitars were getting used by somebody. They, she said that her brother used to stand in front of the mirror and play these guitars mm -hmm. and dream of doing what, she said, what you're doing, you know. So they were happy that they found the home they found for them, you know, and so was I. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great example of a, 
slab board, you know. Yeah, I just found one recently that looks almost identical to it as far as, you know, the, I would say Mother Nature's binding here. I mean, yeah, uh, for Frampton, and it's uh, his is a 59, so <clears throat> this one's a 61. 61. And this was the only guitar I've ever taken to Joe Glazer over the years where when I went to pick it up, he said, if you ever want to sell that guitar, call me first. So something about this guitar he thought was special. Yeah, that's always a good sign when yeah. uh, Joe or some top repairman is like, see, yeah. because they've just kind of seen it all, right? Yeah. Seen it and heard it all, but yeah, um, yeah so this one's um, plenty of wear on yeah. the back of the neck. It's been played. Yeah, so uh, this, I don't worry about what. Uh, what's something that you've used this guitar on? Oh, well... I mean, it's it's on the new Dogs of Peace record, yeah. um, and probably some Faith Hill, Shadaisy. I've used it on some of the records that Dan's called me for. Um, Shane Minor, um, gosh, just you know, yeah, some some things here and there. But yeah, most recently, probably the the Dogs of Peace record we did, and and I'll take it out and play it with the Tom Petty band cover band I do called Petty Junkies. Yes, yeah, you and. Uh, and uh, Jerry McPherson yep. and uh, Brady Seals. Brady Seals have been uh, doing this, uh, you know, side project where, where you all go and play yeah. Tom Petty stuff, and you've been playing oh. Oh. that guitar in your old and your it's, dad's three thirty five. It's and, such a blast. I mean, what it's a, just a great catalog of music, you know. And of course, we were all devastated. I, I really wasn't ready for how I felt when I was told that he had passed away. But, but yeah, just an, uh, I've been in a Beatles cover band before too, called Mystery Trip, and. Just anytime you can be in a group like that where there's that catalog and you, you know, like with the Beatle band, it was the 96th song we learned was Let It Be, you know, and then the same thing with the Tom Petty thing. It's like this could go on for learning songs, could go on forever because the yeah. catalog is so vast and so great. But yeah, so I use this. It's perfect for that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, it's perfect for, yeah. for playing Tom Petty material. Yeah, and I think uh, I use it on, like I'll use it on some demos and and stuff I've gotten cut with Bonnie Raitt in recent years, you know, I like, I'll put this and Dad's 335. So two guitars from 61 on the on the same demo, you know. Yeah. Uh, they just, there was something going on good that year. I don't yeah. know. When you play the, uh, the the Tom Petty, you know, thing, uh, and you take this guitar in the 335, what what else are you using amp-wise? And uh, Well, I've sort of taken that Mike Campbell cue as far as the two little Fender amps side-by-side, side, both yeah. on and, you know, blended. So it's a Princeton Reverb. Yeah. I've got a 65 Princeton Reverb. And then a am using a 60 Deluxe, Tweed Deluxe, side-by-side. Side. Yeah. And then uh, you don't need much much more than that. I mean, I'll, I'll have something to do the whirly sound for the... Let's you know. Let's get to the point. Yeah. Uh, you don't know how it feels. Yeah. You know. To give me so I use an H nine pedal for the rotary. Uh, there's not a lot of there's no delays on guitars on on those songs. So maybe a splash of reverb for uh, here comes my girl, um, and then a drive box or two sometimes. You know, and those get changed around a lot. Just, yeah. Well, let's pull your dad's guitar. <laughs> I love it. This is your this is your dad's three thirty five. It's a sixty one. Sixty one. And so this is the guitar on Pretty Woman. Yes. Just walk on by, stand by your man. You know all all uh, these tunes. I would tell you, to your listeners too and your viewers to go YouTube Charlie Rich, 
life's little ups and downs or life has its little ups and downs and listen to this guitar on that track. That's my favorite thing that he ever did. He used this on. Of course, Pretty Woman's not bad. Yeah. I mean, that's phenomenal too. Um, that was a three guitar guy, uh, him and um, Wayne Moss. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh gosh, I'm having trouble thinking of uh, the other guitar player. He was another. He was another session guy. Yeah, who, that, uh, that at the time was touring with Roy, but then he became a session guy in town. Billy, Billy Sanford. Sanford. Billy Sanford. Yeah. So yeah, Billy Sanford, Wayne Moss, Jerry Kennedy, and they all came in one at a time on the intro, and then it was one, then it was two, then it was three. Yeah. And Roy wrote the riff. You know, a lot of people think that one of those guitar players came up with it, but Roy came in with that. So he and uh, is it Billy D wrote the song. Okay. I think that's the guy's name. And he sang the high harmony, too, on the track with Roy. I always thought that was Roy, but it was Billy Dee's. Oh. <clears throat> um, so, so, yeah. So we have this, this you know, it, and it was, of course, a stock, you know, 335, and then your dad. Uh, he had a guy named Dean Porter pull the Bigsby that was on it when yeah. it was new. And dad bought this from Hughley's Music down in Nashville. So it had a Bigsby on it, so that's what those buttons cover. Yeah. And then a guy named Dean Porter who, and this is what I've learned about him, and I regret not having sought him out to just go talk to him and get to know him. He was a guitar player. And for a time, he actually lived with Ray Eddington, who was a rhythm guitar player that my dad used countless sessions. And he was a bit of a tinkerer also, like a Les Paul kind of guy, I imagine. Yeah. And at some point, he talked my dad and Grady Martin into pulling their Bigsby's off of their Gibson guitars and doing these homemade um, contraptions. So we have uh, this lever here and the bolt that fastens the toilet to the floor in a bathroom. Mm-hmm. That is what sets the amount of travel for the B string. So so if it were a little flat, you'd right. screw that further into the body. And if you change the gauge on the strings or if you tune the guitar down a half step, whatever you do, you always have to kind of be... Yeah. fine-tuning this. Because you always have to have a fine-tuning mechanism on a V-bender to get it to where it's actually pulling it up. Exactly. And that's, how, and that's how you've got it. And then the other piece here, which I don't have this one uh, in use on this guitar right now, but there's a spring that sits in here, so this floats, and you take your elbow and take the high E string down a step, so it would go down yeah. a little step. And you recognize what this is. that I tell you this already or do you yeah, know what that's that is? A, it's from a, a sink stopper. It's yeah, bathtub yeah. or a drain stop in a sink. Yep. So and then again another bolt for the toilet, you know. Yeah. So this guy went to the hardware store in the plumbing aisle to get the stuff to do these things on this guitar. Ingenious. Yeah, and I and it is this is my favorite B bender because I can sit on a session and play this. So on Jewel, yeah. like again records that Dan has called me to play on um I can comfortably do the B-bender thing. With, um, and sit, stay seated, not have yeah. to stand up with a strap, but you know. He didn't do that. I was just like, well, while I got the B-bender, yeah. I'm talking to you about that. Yeah. Anyway, but that's, um, this is on Elvis, Good Luck Charm. Yeah. And you said Stand By Your Man, right? And yeah. Dylan's Blonde on Blonde record, saw this guitar used, um, 
Ringo Starr's second solo album called Bukus of Blues. Dad's on there. Uh, Charlie Daniels is one of the guitar players on that album. Yeah. So at what point did you start playing this? Ooh, um, it probably was, I mean, I might have laid hands on it when I was in high school, but right. But it was probably at some point when I started doing sessions where I would want to do something that would be the foil to the Telecaster. Right. So that way I felt a little more covered on all fronts. So I'd have the, my first, that Telecaster, mm-hmm. and then this guitar, and that would be, the, you know, the majority of what I would do, I could use one of those guitars. Yeah. Um, and at some point I also incorporated, he's got a 355 that's a stereo guitar with the Perloid handle. Have you seen uh, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, Chuck Berry movie? Yeah. It looks exactly like that guitar, same color, okay. same okay. year, everything. The one that Chuck's playing. Right, yeah. Chuck's playing, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and one of those and this I would take. And But yeah, there was always a Telecaster there. The Stratocaster wasn't so much for me through the early years until I we did the Freedom album and I borrowed uh, a 62 Stratocaster from a, a friend named Mickey Striplin who was... He built a lot of studios down in Nashville, this uh, great friend um, who let me borrow that guitar. And I think I use it on the intro to... uh On uh, the the Whiteheart Freedom record, the... But when you listen to that intro with... uh on a 62 Strat with the out of the two, the back, yeah, the back in the middle. Pickup. Yeah. It's like nothing gets that sound. So I, I wound up wanting one for years. And again, like it wasn't until, and I'd had more hot rotted versions of Stratocasters and things like that through the years. We know Floyd Roses, Humbuckers in the bridge, then single coils. But the first real Strat is that 59 that I got in the Nebraska trip. So, yeah. And I've had that for 20 years now. Yeah. Using a lot of stuff. So now Gibson has done a, uh, yeah, so a copy of this. So let me yeah. grab this. Yeah. Zach, yeah. I thought the, the hardest thing for them to do would be to get this hardware done. There's a guy named Nick Hurt over there at Gibson that he just kind of nailed that right out of the chute. Yeah. So, and it, this is my dad's prototype of that guitar. So this was the, the first one they made. So, and Dad would he would have some lick that he would play show, and Pete Drake, the steel player, would turn around and look at him and go, "You big dummy," because yeah. he was playing a steel lick on 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 the right. electric guitar. But yeah, I mean they they did such a great job with this. I have personally sold thirteen of these out of the run of fifty that they're going to do, mm-hmm. and very and I think I will tell you, my dad is probably more proud of this than he is of that. He's more excited oh. about this because I mean, to to my dad, and especially back in the days. First of all, he let Dean Porter talk him into doing these things on a right sixty one three thirty five. Well, it was a new guitar then, yeah, and it was a working tool. And okay, yeah, sure, you know. And he used it. I think you can hear Grady Martin using his B bender on the solo in Devil in Disguise, Elvis. Yeah, he hits a. He does like a. a he hits that twice in his solo, right? <laughs> and so, um, but again, working tool, 
And yeah. they just stayed in the closet after he sort of slowed down playing sessions and did more production work. But when I told him that Gibson wanted to do this, he kind of, yeah. like, you're kidding. you know. So this whole thing and this nod to, to him as a player and to the records that that thing is on and the fact that they even wanted to do this just blew him away. Yeah, what a, what a great honor to have a uh, collector series. They even put the bicycle reflector thing. Yeah, it's down. <laughs> or, either, or is that a mailbox uh, sticker? Or would you put the numbers on your mailbox? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but that's that's to cover up the big the uh, the Bigsby holes. Right, right. Yeah. That's all it was. Yeah, yeah. Because so, yeah, the, the others. It's the Bigsby bite is here, and the the, the four yeah. you know, screw holes are. But I told. Uh, let me see that one again. Like the last song that I had, uh, Bonnie Raitt cut of ours called "Gypsy and Me." I wrote with Wayne Kirkpatrick. I did the demo with this guitar and played a... Played it on this guitar and told her I used the guitar that my dad played on Pretty Woman. I said, that's for you. (laughs) She cut the song. It's the fourth single I've had with her. And... uh, and that, at that point, we started having a little exchange about, because, you know, her dad was in, in music and showbiz yes. and, and did Broadway. And, and uh, I would take pictures of anytime I saw his name on a theater that Peter and I were playing when we were out doing the acoustic shows and send to her and say, hey, your dad's on the wall here. So yeah. it, it, meant, it meant something to both of us to be second generation music people. But, but to be able to play this and tell her, that's, this is what was on that song, and it's on the demo for... Yeah. Or your song was a cool thing. <clears throat> well, let's move into Burstland. Dad heard that John Sebastian came to Nashville and was just blown away by the number of guitar yeah. players that you know were playing in Nashville. So there's 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville, according to John's song. Yeah, you know he had a mistake in the song too about the Yellow Sun records from Nashville. Right, everyone was a Yellow Sun record from Nashville, and no, yeah. no. but uh, yeah, so. And then, so John and I did a story on this for Vintage Guitar, kind of the, the then and now. And then after we did it, it came out nice. We were talking on the phone, and he just casually said, I wonder if they'd be interested in my other guitar story. And I said, what's that? He goes, well, you know, before I got the guitar that you now have, I was playing a, a Gold Top Les Paul from the 50s. And, and he said, "We were. <laughs> do you know this story? I think so. Okay. Go, keep going. All right. Keep going. Well, he said, we were getting ready to sign our record deal for Love and Spoonful. And I looked at the guitar and said, is this the guitar that an up-and-coming rock and roll star should be seen playing? And for whatever reason, I thought, no, it's not. Maybe because it looked like your father's Les Paul. I don't know. But So he said, so I let it go, and Rick Derringer got it. Yeah. Okay, so then Rick Derringer's playing it for a while, and he said, as is the case with certain 50s gold tops, which this ended up being a 57 with humbuckers. Yep. He said the top started to turn green. So he says um, he got a little disenchanted with the guitar, took it to somebody, said, refinish it, do it red. So they did it in red, got the guitar back. He liked the way it looked. It looked great. No, it just didn't feel the same to him. He's Now he's not happy with it again, so he decides to let it go, and Clapton gets it and gives it to George Harrison. Yeah. And then George loans it to him back to him to play on uh, my, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And it's all over the White Album and the solo for something and everything. Yeah, I said, yeah, they might be interested in that story. <clears throat> That's, yeah. That, vintage. I mean, it's phenomenal to think yeah. that 
you know, Lucy. Sebastian had, you know, the gold top that went to Derringer. He gets it refinished in red. Then it goes to Clapton. Then it goes to yeah. Harrison. And, and, it's, that's and one then of the, he would maintain also that arguably this guitar is sort of like a ground zero guitar for all the people that we know that would subsequently play these things. Right. John was playing them in the mid-60s, playing this. And then Mike Bloomfield saw him playing it. Yeah. What is that? I got to have one. So mm -hmm. the next time I saw him, John said he was playing his own 59 Burst. And then, of course, he was being looked up to by all these. All, the, all yeah. of a sudden, the dominoes start tipping for, for everybody to do. And this one particularly, when I went to go, I had, um, you want the story about when I got this? Yeah. Is that cool? Um, when I went to Ohio, I had met a guy who had a, a store in Toledo, and I'd gone to a vintage show, and it happened to be the first time I ever took my father to a vintage guitar show, and it was funny to watch him walking around pointing to things going, I had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and I had one of those. Well, he had one of these, too. But anyway, um, it, he bought it because the trunk fit his, the, the, the form-fit case fit the trunk of the car best. Then it was too heavy to play for two hours, so he traded it for a Strat with Billy Sanford. Anyway, so I saw the guy from Toledo um, and my friend Bruce Barr, who's sadly no longer with us, and it was a dear friend. He said, there's a 59 Les Paul in the building. They want you to come play it. I said, I'll go look at it. I'm not playing it, though. I'll look at it. Well, they want you to play it. No, I'll just look at it. So I took my dad, and we went around, and there's a, this sitting in the lifting case up on the tabletop and open, and I walked up, and I went, wow. And then before I, wow, these guys had like a, NASCAR pit crew, strapped this thing on me and plugged in and turned an amp on. So I'm standing there yeah. with this guitar, you know, and I'm, so I start noodling on it and my, and I look at my dad and I go, well, I understand what the hype is about. And it was immediate, you know? So I decided at some point to go pay this guy a visit and buy that guitar. And we made arrangements over the phone. Well, I had two things that happened the week that I was going to go get the 59 I saw, which was a plain top. 59 Les Paul, it sounded wonderful. And I called to say, would you be willing to drive even an hour towards me? Because it's seven hours for me to get to you. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. And so then I thought as the, the weekend drew closer, even still called to see how they wanted payment. And one of somebody that worked with him answered the phone. Hello. It's so, so I don't remember the guy's name now. Is he, is he there? No. Uh, do you know when he's going to get back? How am I supposed to know? Like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> so I'm like going to go and pay for a guitar like I'm got, buying a new car, you know. Yes. And it, the people at the car dealership are going, how am I supposed to know? You know. Yeah. So anyway, the plan was for me and Bruce to roll through Cincinnati and stop to see Gary Dick, who has Gary's classic guitars in Cincinnati. And he was waiting for us on a Friday night. And we went into his house. He was there by himself. His family was out of town. And he showed us guitars from 11 in, at night till about 4.30 in the morning, just nonstop, kept them coming. And he had, yeah. he had five of this ilk, three of these and two 58s. Mm -hmm. This was the only one he had that had any wear on it at all. And he would, what he would do is he would, put them on, he would take the case and put it on his pool table. 
And he would open the lid and the light over the pool table shone on it. And he would say, come look at it from over here. Come look at it from over here. And, yeah. and I just thought, this is, okay, I'm, I'm seeing it all through his eyes. I'm, this is not what I would, how I look at guitars, but I was looking at it through his eyes. And man, that's fascinating. And, yeah. and so, okay, you were going to ask. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that, uh, one, uh, you know, again, this, the, being a real 59, yeah. uh, the, the tops are really interesting because they will— uh, they are more 3D. Oh gosh! And depending yeah, and on it won't come why they're on camera like yeah, that, yeah, why they're wanting you to look at diff from different angles is because you see different yes. parts of the grain popping out, and that's yeah. And of course, you know, if you take this pickup ring off, it's cherry red right under there. Yeah, still, but all the red had faded, and it was just this honey color. Yeah, and I've got um, one of the replicas. I took up to U.S. Bank Stadium to do the show and. It's on a, I took a picture of it, I'm walking up the stairs, going on stage, I'm looking down in the guitar pit, and for the first time, I'm taking a picture of the guitar with sunlight coming through the glass top, and this lemon color is diving off of the top of that guitar, it's just exploding, yeah. right? And there's still a little bit of the brownish red up here, but there's this lemon, and you can see that there's a, a little bit of that color in there. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, they should go back and make all these guitars that have that lemon color, they should call, call the guitars, because it's like a combination of tea, iced tea, and lemon, and they should yeah. call it the Arnold Les Palmer <laughs> color for these guitars, because <laughs> that's what it is to me. Yeah. But, so, okay, so so John, um, I mean, up in, back to Cincinnati, not the John Sebastian guitar, I knew that Gary had it, because I met him at that show, and he yeah. said, I've got the guitar that John Sebastian used on, you know, all the Spoonful records. I was like, oh my gosh. So we made plans to go visit him, saw all those guitars, and saw five of, of this, you know, two, 258s, three 59s, and went back to the hotel at about 4.30 in the morning, and Bruce and I are talking. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, first of all, I'm not going to Toledo. I said, that guy was rude to me twice in mean, his business, you know. And I said, and this guy is just a total gentleman and, and a good, good guy, and so if I buy one, I'm going to buy one from him. Well, what would you get? I said, well, it would have to be one of the 59s, you know. And this was the cheapest one there because it, the other ones were like, this, this 59 Les Paul, the parents bought this for their son when he was 14 and he took two weeks of lessons and then he quit music and then put it away. And so right. it looks like a brand new guitar. Yeah. So they were so clean and so expensive. Yeah, so they were yeah. quite a bit more than this guitar. And, um, and so, and this of course, one, I, I was intrigued by the history of it. So, but anyway, so I looked at the guitars and, and decided, you know, and Bruce was saying, well, I would get a 58 because I was born in 58. I said, get one, <laughs> you yeah. know, get, get it. <laughs> so we went back the next day. We had told Gary we'd go to lunch. And before we walked out of his house, just for some reason or other, I said, would you mind if we plugged the guitars in, you know, plugged them in? And, uh, oh, certainly. So he started fishing these guitars up from the basement, uh, into a, like a little, he had a little sunroom with a deluxe reverb, blackface deluxe reverb. And we started plugging these guitars in one at a time. And the, when I plugged this in about third and just played a, an open, you know, uh, first time I hit that, my jaw hit the floor. And I just looked at Bruce and I went, you know, yeah. this, this <laughs> is the guitar. It's the guitar. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I ended up, you know, working out a deal with Gary that day. He got some amps and, and, and money and whatever. And then I bought a California girl, you know that case? The, yeah. Bought one of those cases for it and brought it home. And, and I called John Sebastian. I said, 
uh, I got his number from Al Anderson. He goes, I heard you got my guitar. He said, I'm so glad it's not in Japan, he said. And um, I said, yeah, I think that my my dad was uh, most excited when I told him because he reminded me, he said, you know, remember how excited you were about Nashville Cats when you were a kid? I was probably about six years old. And I told John, Sebastian, I said, I reckon I likened it to all the stuff my dad was bringing home by Roger Miller. It just sounded, he goes, that's who I was trying to emulate. Wow. When I wrote Nashville Cats, you know, and you think about all the his phrasing in that song, it's very Roger esque. But uh, and so yeah, I've had this for twenty years now, and it's sort of like the guitar, you know, by which all other guitars have to be measured. To me, you can sort of get some Fender sounds out of it uh, with the volume control, but I mean that bridge pickup. I mean that doesn't sound like Les Paul to me. clear, you know. Just bell-like, I mean, crystal clear. And then the neck pickup is nice, too. It has everything that the guitar is supposed to have and rumored to have, it's true, this one. And I've handed this to guitar players over the years and had them come back and say, I've had four of them say, I had a dream about that guitar. Yeah. So it's kind of whatever's going on with the guitar or something special. You're using an interesting pick. Uh, V-Picks. Yeah. Vinnie Smith, this is one he made for me. See, it's got the little dude standing on top of the world. Yeah. So it's changed the world. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty thick. It is, yeah. Take yeah. It, check it out. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I don't know, it seems to just sort of... Uh, roll on the strings nicely and they have, you can get them sort of with this kind of edge or do what he's calling a, a ghost rim where he roughs up the edges and gets a little bit of, I think he was trying to get like Billy Gibbons uh, yeah, a little, the coin or whatever. Yeah, a little raspiness. Yeah, and so it'll do that. Um, I just, I'm, I'm sort of getting spoiled to these over yeah. the last couple of years. So And, and strings? Uh, been using D'Addario's for many years now. That was yeah. due to when I first started working with Frampton in 2000. He just, he said, oh, call, you know, my guy is this guy. So I, I wound up getting a, a deal with them over the years. And now Tom Spaulding is a, yeah. a good friend and, and uh, he's, Helped me over the years, yeah. There's tens or? Well, these would be nines on here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I like a, a low action and a light touch, easy to bend and yeah. um, don't really, um, I mean, I, I'll put tens on guitars every once in a while uh, or even heavier like on a Gretsch or something, but typically I just use the nine to 42s yeah. for electric stuff. Yeah, so you want to you see the yeah. replica? Let's look one? at the copy now. Yeah, the replica. They, they've done a fine job on that as well. And again, it's um, I think it's something with the custom bucker pickups that they're doing now that are getting closer to old guitars. Yeah. When I started playing the replicas of that, I actually got rid of a couple of Les Pauls I had that were newer Les Pauls. It's mm -hmm. like, I won't ever touch those again. Yeah. But when they set out to make this, and you know, obviously they go to a little more painstaking efforts to, to do a replica of a guitar like that, and they, they relic it and do all that stuff. The uh, mahogany is from Fiji, planted by the British soldiers during World War II when they were taking lumber out of the ground for the war effort, planting behind it. That's what they got for this guitar all these years later. And then the Eastern Hard Rock Maple, you know, and it has that growl. 
what you want the Les Paul to do. And I'm, so I'm using one of these on stage with Garth right now too. It, it just works. It just works for me. So, um, they did a superb job on this. And I think the one that I'm using with Garth is the last one they made at number 210. So they did 210 of those guitars so far. And yeah. I, they usually don't go back and make them again, but they made one for me for the Garth tour. So you finishing out the year playing with, with Garth and, and what's up next? Well, we got one more stadium show in November. Okay. He hasn't announced it yet. So in fact, no, I'm okay to say that. Yeah. Um, and then these dive bar shows that are coinciding with his current single of the same title. And we've got uh, five more of those. The next one's in Green Hall, Texas, uh, September 23rd. Wow. Yeah, so but then there's four more after that. So I don't know where they are Yeah. and um, when they are. It's just we wait to see the Garth signal in the sky and then... <laughs> and then, you, then you're off and running. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, you know... Thank you so much for letting us, uh, you know, come into your home, into your studio. I, you know, it's beautiful. I love the uh, the Vox grill cloth and the Fender grill cloth and all the things that you've you've done in this place. And uh, well, you and, guys have been here before. Yeah. If in effects, in tones. Yeah. You've, your presence has been here before, so it's glad. It's uh, I'm glad to have you personally here. Yeah, and I know that uh, on the dive bar, you know, gigs you've been using are, are yeah. Route 66 and the XO. Yeah, and playing those through a little uh, deluxe reverb, and it's perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Zach. For, it's, my, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah.